0: And somewhere around July, and I even remember it was around that 4th of July weekend, I began to realize I was believing uh, in the Jesus they were talking about. And he said, okay, second question. If you were standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And I said, well, that's easy. I would say you shouldn't. Uh, Immediately after that first bout of cancer, one of my children was the victim of a violent crime. We were the family that found ourselves on the front page of the Democrat Gazette. And that was probably in the middle of a, of a season for us that became a, a very dark, uh, long season of pain. And I remember saying out loud, you know, nobody else awake in the home, God, some wounds don't heal. And this one may be the rest of my life. And there was no answer back. And so I said out loud, figures. You're going to be silent.
1: Have you ever been sitting in church, listening to the minister deliver his message and wondered, who is this guy? No, really. Who is he? How did he come to Jesus? Was he just born knowing God? Does he have any flaws or character defects? Has he experienced any struggles, hurts, or hardships? Has he ever made any mistakes? Does he have any regrets in life? Would he change anything if he could? Does he get depressed? And how does he deal with conflict? Does God speak to him any differently than he speaks to me? Can this person on stage possibly struggle with the same things that I struggle with? And if so, what has God revealed to him about life's hurts, habits, and hangups? Today, I'm talking with my own pastor, and I'm going to ask him to tell his story and how God has changed his perspective on life. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So hey, pastor friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are?
0: Hi, Eric. Uh, I'm Mark Schatzman, and I work as the congregational leader at Fellowship Bentonville. So get the joy of working with a
1: good staff and uh, also serving with a great body. Well, Mark, uh, thanks again for coming today. And so the listeners don't know you like I do, and I don't know your entire story, but why don't you start with kind of the beginnings, like where did you grow up and maybe a little bit about your family of origin?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm a military kid. So, which means it's easy to tell you where I was born and hard to tell you where I I grew up. Uh, Born in El Paso, Texas, I moved 11 times before I hit age, or about the time I hit age 14. So, we were all over. That's even a lot of moves for a military family. So, I really cannot tell you where I'm from, uh, and that alone will shape you. A little bit of a third culture kid uh, that way in the sense that you have roots, but at the same time, you also have a lot of wings and uh, you, you're kind of used to calling anywhere your family is home. Sure, did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have three brothers, so there's four boys in our family, uh, close together in age, uh, incredibly active family. Um, it, it's so much so that we would never pace our family the, the way that I grew up, and I think it was part of my parents' survival tactic, which is keep four busy boys very busy, and uh, we were. And so played most of every sport, did scouts, school, It wasn't uncommon to play three or four sports per year, all four of us. And so it was just kind of a whirling,
1: active family. So where are you in the pecking order? Are you uh, the oldest, the youngest, or somewhere in the middle? Number two. Number two. Number
0: two. And uh, growing up, uh, my brothers now, I would call my closest friends. I think our wives would call each other uh, their closest friends. So very uh, blessed uh, in that regard. But yet growing up, we were very competitive. Um, uh, Did not grow up in a Christian home. And so we were churched in the sense that we were uh, more than nominal, far less than devout in a more high church background. So we were church attenders, but I were, we were not grounded into God. And uh, as a result, my brothers and I were very competitive. Um, push often came to shove, which rolled into fights
1: often. And yet we loved each other and kind of tousled through life. So did you have any God moments? Now, you said you weren't raised in a Christian home, so can you look back and see where God was working, even though you weren't going to church or having a relationship with Him? How did God enter your life, and maybe was it later that you actually accepted Christ? I mean, tell me a little bit about Late that. Late high school. Late high school. Yeah. Okay. So
0: about mid-high school, landing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which became what we call hometown uh, just because if we were there the longest, uh, I started hanging around with a group of guys. We probably still ran a little too wild, but they were more grounded. They definitely had a sense of more peace and there was a, a sense of purpose in their life. And they started asking me, uh, I remember the first time they asked me to come to a, a morning Bible study before a morning football workout. And it was with one of the coaches who was leading it. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. My, my honest thought, Eric, was, wow, you study the Bible. I wonder if you study Shakespeare too. Because in my mind, the Bible was just up there with ancient literature. And, uh, but I liked these guys. They asked me a lot over and over again, probably through the spring semester. Uh, I decided I would go on one of the last um, Wednesday mornings, the school was in session before summer break, because then you could only have to go once and they would forget about it and we'd move on. And I went and I was thoroughly intrigued. I mean, I was absolutely captivated by the kinds of things they were talking about. Uh, I didn't know that they were going to continue the study through the summer before early morning summer workouts. And so I continued on with them. And somewhere around July, and I even remember it was around that 4th of July weekend, I began to realize I was believing uh, in the Jesus they were talking about and the Jesus we were learning about. And I had an odd conversation with the a young volunteer coach who was leading that study. Uh, after the study ended, we're all leaving the gym and he's like, hey Mark, can you hang back for a quick second? Um, I got a question for you. Sure. We sat down on the concrete steps and he said, I have two questions actually. Now I know that these two questions I'm about to say, Eric, now are what you've been trained on in what's called evangelism explosion. But remember I'm a non-church kid, so I'd never heard of that. And he said, the first question is if you were to die tonight how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And I said, man, that's a heavy question. Can you give me a second to think about it? And he said, sure. And I paused and I said, "On a one to 10 scale, 10, 10, I'm sure I'd go to heaven. And he said, really? In that tone that, that we use when you don't believe somebody. And I said, yeah, really? And he said, okay, second question. If you were standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And I said, well, that's easy. I would say you shouldn't because of my sin, but you will because Jesus died for my sin and he rose again. And this leader looked at me and he said, Mark, that's incredible. How how long have you known that? And I said, I think about right now, but I think maybe I've been knowing that all, all summer. But no one ever asked me that directly. And so, yeah, I think it, it's kind of clicked in here really recently, but maybe right now.
1: So did you pray to receive Christ then? Or would you say that that, that was a process that yeah. happened? Because I've heard some people say, hey, there's a definite time, you know, the Baptist, oh, when mm. was the time and the date? And then write it in your Bible. But it sounds to me like it was more of a process for you. Would you say yeah, it that way?
0: I would. Somewhere between June and that early July, there was definite dawning that this Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he does. And uh, I remember asking uh, my brothers, uh, Christmas started rolling around and he had loaned me a paperback Bible and I was using his paperback Bible and I asked my brothers, hey, I would, you know, they, we did one family gift and I want a leather Bible and I want it in this version because this is what the other guys are reading and they say it's easier to understand. I didn't even know there were other versions. Um, and that was my gift that year. Uh, I can't remember the order. Um, I think I remember it going something like this. My younger, my brother, younger than me, ended up coming to Christ uh, about a year later, maybe a year and a half or so later. My youngest brother, by that time I was rolling into the first year of college and been asked to come home by my parents to watch my youngest brother for a weekend because they were on a trip, a getaway. And uh, uh, he came to Christ that weekend I was home. Um, older brother came back in town at one point and was able to share Christ with him about a year or so later. And so literally, my parents watched all four of their sons' lives change. And it wasn't until decades later that they came to Christ, but uh, it was the life change in their sons
1: that they saw. That is an amazing story in itself, that your parents came to Christ through their sons. Yeah. That is amazing. Can
0: I tell you one little segue that I just thought of? So I lost both my parents in this last year Mm. and uh, had... uh, um, kind of that sacred, um, hard, but sweet moment of helping them finish and die well. And uh, we were around the funeral after my dad's uh, funeral. And someone asked, we were shoved into one of my brother's hotel rooms. Everybody's in town for the funeral. Um, And one of the sisters-in-law looked around and said, there must be 28 or 30 of us in the family now. And everybody here knows and loves the Lord. Like, that's ridiculous. Cause I know how you guys started. Um, how does that happen? And my older brother, oldest is a red over me said, it happened because of a 15 year old boy who invited Mark to a study. And he was probably insecure and nervous about it, probably scared to death to invite him, probably tired of Mark's rejection, but he just kept befriending him and asking him. And I wonder if that 15 year old boy who's now probably almost 60, knows that a whole family tree of 30. So uh it it really is does start that small.
1: Amen. That's so powerful and you know that whole evangelism explosion thing that you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, you know, the two questions that got you thinking about it. So that's that's really awesome. Well, tell me about Mark uh in high school. Were you a uh, a guy that that dated a lot? Did you have relationships with the uh with your You know, did you have girlfriends or did you stay in sports only or what did you, how was your dating life then?
0: I dated a little bit and then uh, rolled into about the second year we were in Albuquerque. So I guess I would have been a junior. I think that's the right timeline. Started my junior year of high school, rolled into an algebra class and there was a girl across the, the room and her name was Lisa and she's now my wife. And truly, that was the only object of my dating desire. She kept stiff on me, and she should have. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I was definitely distracted on everything. Uh, and we just developed a friendship for the, the first bit, and then began to date in late, in late
1: high school. So what was it like whenever you came to the Lord? I mean, was she already a Christian? And then, I mean, how did you share with her, hey, look what's happened in my life? Yeah. I, I know the Jesus that you know. I mean, how did that happen?
0: Lisa was a believer before I was, uh, but her family would definitely been not, not much as a follower of Jesus in the sense of just pursuing God in a day out and day out way. And, uh, she would say she noticed a change in me and that began to catch fire to her. And, uh, we, uh, dated very seriously through college. The very last year of college, we actually got married in college, um, We did that poor student thing where we went to class during the day, we waited tables at night, we paid the bills by cash. Uh, We're super involved in a student ministry, a ministry that's now called Crew, But at the time we were in in college, it was Campus Crusade for Christ, and they were very instrumental in our involvement and our growth. Uh, At about 19, I had a massive God moment that I could not see coming. really through a conference that I went to during the Christmas time uh, with about 3,000 other college students in uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, through crew, crew, had a sense of really surrendering and signing a title deed, literally. On the first page of my Bible, I wrote out a title deed to to the ownership of my life to Jesus. And I knew, uh, heading back to Albuquerque from Dallas, that I was going to go into full-time Christian ministry. Now, you have to understand, that is a bizarre comment for a kid who'd never seen what that might be and uh but i knew i knew that i knew that i was going to do something with this as a career and after college uh, i did some other work in business for a few years and enjoyed that uh, i'm glad that i had that i wanted some breadth of experience but i always knew that uh vocationally to do something that i would get to teach and encourage people to
1: chase after jesus with what i would do with, with my life
0: Wow and, and you uh, got
1: married to Lisa your senior year senior year of so college. you guys were a team going out of college and then you said you kind of took a job in business so um, I was gonna ask you about call of ministry you kind of said you when you were 19 but how did you segue from yeah how did you segue from business to church at that point we were very much on the same page and she knew. That we would be heading that way too, and she
0: was uh, super committed to that. We thought we would be; uh, it would be a lifetime of on staff with Campus Crusade or Crew International. Now, Uh, thought it would lead us overseas, and yet fifth month of uh, marriage, we found out we were pregnant. So Lisa's schooling went much slower. She just truly chipped away at classes when we could kind of work childcare around and and get our daughter uh, uh, covered and. Um, so, all of those things slowed down, and the role into business just became a good thing. It allowed her to finish her education, allowed me to get grounded and keep growing. Uh, but we always knew at the right time we would depart from that and uh, and head on towards working for a nonprofit Christian organization.
1: So, what led? So, tell me the leading
0: into that. So, then. in 89, 1989, we made the jump. I resigned from my job, I felt crazy. I was reigning from a good job and a boss I really liked. And, uh, and we went on staff with a crew, thought we would head to the college ministry, work with college students, and then head overseas. Uh, crew, at that point, looked at us, at this young couple with a new baby, well, not a new baby, a toddler still at that age, and uh, said, uh, no, we're not sending you overseas right away, wisely. They said that. Um, And so they said, we would like to send you to Little Rock, Arkansas, to work with a group who back then was called the Family Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's a group called Family Life. And they said, we want you to do at least two years there. And I said, fine, very angry. Uh, We'll do our two years, and then I'm out of Dodge, and we're overseas. And uh, that was uh, New Year's Eve, 1989. We moved to Arkansas, and we've been here ever since. So obviously the Lord has a way of... uh, Uh, redirecting paths, even stubborn
1: paths. That's amazing. Most of the time, at least my experience has been, when people have a calling to missions or, and you mentioned overseas, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a specific, you know, almost a a specific calling. And I've noticed that people, when they say, yeah, that's what I'm called to do, that that's where they end up going. And so there must have been a real somewhere there was a turn and you think, okay, God's got me going this way instead of that way.
0: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great observation. And I think I had two things, and this might tell you a little bit about even... You, you, know, you and I have talked in the past about where we find our identity. Um, that sense of achievement is, is where identity came from for me as a child. Um, you know, by the way, does that not fit a very military culture? that meritocracy kind of culture that fits a very athletic or an academic culture. Performance. Performance is life, right? And so I had a warped vision of the Christian life that said somehow the highest achievement is only if you go and do the hardest, furthest away thing. And so, you know, A-level Christians would be overseas missionaries. B-level would stay back here and kind of tend to what God is doing back here. And so I think that was some of the dysfunction that I didn't even know. I can articulate that now. couldn't have said that back then. But then secondly, there was no doubt there were pastoral leanings. Uh, uh, Even the way I led my team on a staff with crew, uh, honestly, I was probably the least talented guy in the room. Um, But I look back in hindsight, we did some neat things together because I was passionate about pastoring people and seeing their best come out. And I didn't know it was pastoring. And it was Lisa who started spotting that while I was on staff. And then at the same time, we were involved in a church plant. Um, and you do a little bit of everything when you're volunteering at a church plant. So we were not on staff, not taking a paycheck. Uh, Eric, I even ran sound one morning because the sound guy got stomach flu. I'd never run sound in my life. He just said, here's the volume, up, down. That's all you need to know, and which is not true. Um, <laughs> and uh, we did a little bit of everything. And I started filling the pulpit. When that was needed and a pastor needed vacation or needed some time off or had emergencies. And um, Lisa began to watch and said, I'm seeing something shift in you. Are you sure you might not be called uh, to pastoral ministry? And it was the first time I began to raise my antenna
1: and pray it through. So did you feel about yourself, did you feel very self-confident? I mean, you come across as being very self-confident, but in that time of your life, you know, when you talked a little bit about identity, did you feel like that Mark was confident and, um, in yourself, or did you have some, some little insecurities there oh, going yeah. on?
0: Let's go ahead and call them big insecurities. So I've got some deep-seated convictions that, first of all, probably all people are insecure. Secondly, all men, and I believe some of this even traces back to what we know about in Genesis 3, all men battle with this fear of failure and insecurity. And then those of us who are addicted to performance as our identity, we are far more insecure. In fact, the performance is usually the outward act that's hiding the inside security. You just outwork it, outrun it. And uh, work ethic was prized in my background, and I'm grateful for that. I would not trade that for anything and yet it's one thing to work hard and be faithful it's another thing to do that hoping to gain an identity so uh no i was deeply insecure over this move into the pastorate and began to pray it through mostly
1: i stiff-armed it out of fear so did the so did the call to the pastor? It was that in the church plant. Is that when that happened? Where were you getting money? I mean, how did you pay the bills?
0: Yeah, we were working on staff with crew. So I was. My kids used to say, "Is Daddy working at his day office or his night office?" Because when you're working so much, I mean, I truly felt like a bivocational pastor. So I had a day job that paid the bills with crew with family life, and I was directing um, their U.S. Um, ministry and the the conference ministry and. Um, And it was busy, um, but this growing passion for this growing group of believers and, and wanting to invest in it. And that was the free job. And then about that time, two phone calls came. One was from my old mentor who had moved to South Carolina. And he said, I want you to come with me and be the executive pastor here and work with me and manage the staff and maybe teach once a month to spell me a little bit. But your day job essentially will be what you do with family life and the church will bring you on staff. That made all the sense in the world. We took two trips out there. Lisa was with me on the second one. They offered a job. We even looked at a house. And about that time, the church that we were serving at, volunteering at, called and said, would you just stay here and become the pastor here? And then we had this prayer decision and we stepped into that role. And through through us time of prayer, some fasting, a lot of discussion. Uh, And hardest decision, I think, was that first decision Lisa and I had to make. Uh, And we felt God say, stay, stay where I planted you and serve this. And uh, uh, yes, with joy, but with a lot of fear and some tears, we said yes to that.
1: So was everything cake and cookies or were there some, a few little problems maybe?
0: Yeah. You know, the truth is in the very beginning, we experienced some cake and cookies and there was a honeymoon period. And I'm glad for that. Um, but it didn't last long because things that are left undealt with, this is true in our personal lives, right? You know, the hurts, habits, hangups we talk about, the way they can take us in unhealthy ways. If you don't deal with those, we just get more clever at masking those. And and, and a corporate body does that just like a an individual human body does that. And so those issues begin to surface. Now, I think I was A, too young and immature, and B, um, not courageous enough to dive into those directly. And maybe that's good. Maybe those things needed to come up slowly, but uh, I dealt with those mostly by trying to just, A, work harder because that's what I do. And B, work really hard at pulling people together to work hard together, and we're just going to skate by it and not worry about it. And you just can't keep sweeping that dirt under the rug. It gets well, it starts to grow like a mountain. And when it came out was probably a couple of years into the journey. And there was really, uh, it was a split happening. Uh, Again, not being a church kid, I could not have told you what that looks like. I can tell you what it looks like now. It never is obvious, it's always slow. And I look back in hindsight, lessons learned, I would have been way more uh, firm on things that I was too passive and gentle on. And I would have been way gentler on things that I was too firm on. Uh, And so plenty of good lessons learned for me. in that, I wanted to just move on to another. Hey, if this, you know, if this folks want to go a different direction, let me be the one to head on a different direction. But uh, it was real clear through what God was doing with the elders that it was no, you need to stay, keep leading us through this. And the split did happen, and that was probably in the middle of a of a season for us that became a
1: a very dark, uh, long season of pain. So you said the church split came in the middle of a dark season. Why don't you describe that season and some of the things that happened?
0: So the beginning chapter, the way I would describe that whole season that has kind of brought you and I up to even talking and sharing our stories in the past, uh, was a seven-year season that was bookended. So it started in 1998, ended in 2004, beginning of 2005. Um, The bookends were some cancer in me. That came up, so a small bout of cancer that came up uh, uh, in '98, and then in 2004 and 2005, that cancer came back uh, with a vengeance. It came back with a good, angry attitude and took a, some surgeries and lo- a lot of chemo and a lot of treatment through a year. But it's funny because that's what people on the outside would say that must have been what hurt, and we would say uh, that didn't definitely didn't feel good, but it's not what hurt. What hurt on the ins- was happening in between those uh, bookends on those seven years. Uh, Immediately after that first bout of cancer, um, one of my children was the victim of a violent crime. We were the family that found ourselves on the front page of the Democrat Gazette. And um, it was awful. It was horrendous. Uh, It was honestly hellish. Um, uh, It did not take her life, but uh, it brought all of the kinds of grief and pain that you can imagine. It, It brings not just that child and obviously... devastation she was at the epicenter of that but really the rest of us so we had four children total at that time we now have five by the way but uh, four total at that time and uh lisa and i hurting as parents uh we're trying to learn how to shepherd a a daughter who's wounded um, her siblings who are hurting uh, ourselves and at the same time, quite honestly, a church who was trying to process it with us too, and I really do believe, uh, meant really well. And so it was just a very uh, painful, painful season of life. And uh, if, if any of our listeners have walked through that, I'm grateful for the justice system we have, but it is still a broken system. And uh, so we walked through the, uh, the trial of that perpetrator, uh, the one-year process of that, um, the trial itself, which is its own level of trauma and prepping your own child for that. Um, the whole time I am holding my head up, moving forward, because by the way, that's what you do in a military family. You soldier on. That's what you do as an ex-athlete. You get up and run the next play. And, um, and so I know how to play hurt. And you keep playing hurt because there are people that need you. You know, uh, five of them are the members of your family. But then there are another 400 or so that are the members of your congregation. At the time, we were growing as a church. um, We had growth pains and financial challenges and other things. um, And I just kept playing hurt.
1: So, Mark, let me stop you there for just a moment and process what you just said. You took a full-time pastoral position with this church plant where you had been serving You discover that you have cancer and start treatment for that. Your daughter is violently attacked. Your entire family has to deal with the physical trauma of that attack, the emotional trauma, and the public trial of the perpetrator, which takes a year. Now the church in which you are pastoring is going through a split, and people are leaving. What did that do to you emotionally?
0: Um. I remember coming home at times and telling Lisa, I have never worked so hard in my life to fail so badly. I feel like I could fail this badly if I didn't show up at all. <laughs> so uh, maybe I should quit and the results would still be the same. Um, that does a couple of things to you, by the way. You're grieving um, the loss that, that your daughter and your family and yourself have taken. And don't forget where I said my identity was, performance. Performance. And so as people loudly slam the door on the way out and tell you it's because of your leadership um, that we don't like your leadership. Now, to be fair, I didn't like my leadership at that time either. (laughs) And so uh, I was a a grieving, wounded man on the inside soldiering forward. Um, But that takes a direct hit to that idol or that identity, false identity of performance. And it was a... It was a, a rough and good gift from God to watch false identities crumble because they have to crumble if good identities, real identities are going to emerge. Um, but the reality was, I think the Lord was just saying, are, uh, are you done with that? Are you done without, with trying to outwork it? And uh, are you truly at a place where you can believe that I am enough? And Eric, that was, and it was, again, a long, slow process. So I never got to that place where there was a boiling point where I had to come in and tell the elders, you know, I'm at a breakdown point, although I totally understand how people I love and people I'm friends with have gotten to that place. Um, I never got there. Um, I never came to a place where I'm just like, I quit and I'm done or I'm in a fetal position. But emotionally, I think I was in a fetal position. And I had begun this quiet resignation of surrendering to Jesus. And um, just saying, I'm willing for you to take the things that have become my idols. The two things that i treasured the most, um, Lisa and I are both first generation Christians. And so we wanted to raise this family built on Jesus and pointing to Jesus in no way, shape or form, wanting to be perfect, but wanting it to be about him. And then your family takes a blow and you hurt. And I wanted to Never just be great or famous at something, but just be known for being really faithful with high integrity in his work. And then your integrity gets attacked. And, uh, and I had to live with that. And in the living with that, in the grieving of that, I learned to do what grieving and surrender lets you do. And it just kind of melts down your false identity and gives you an opportunity to build something up that's more real and more true. In our home, we started developing these little sayings. I, I preached them to myself more than anybody else. And the first one was simply this Jesus is really enough. Jesus is really enough. He is good. I cannot explain why he let evil touch my home. I cannot explain why he let betrayals happen through people I would have called comrades. Um, so I can't figure out the why, but I know that he's enough. And that He'll let me rebuild myself on Him, and uh, He proved Himself to be faithful. Um, a lot of tears. Uh, I enjoyed Saturday afternoons of mowing the lawn because the lawnmower we pushed around at that time was so loud I could shout and cuss and and tell the Lord how disappointed with Him I was, and that if I was leading my life, you know, if I was the ruler of the world, I definitely would have scripted something different. I could tell Him that. Uh, Uh, I was a level of discouragement. Uh, You know, Eric, I remember one elder meeting coming back where we were trying to, the elders who stayed and I were trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together with a couple of other individuals who were clearly not heading in that direction. And it was one of those elders meetings that uh, I didn't roll into the house until after midnight. And anytime an elder meeting goes on that late, it's never because we're out celebrating. You know, it's because there's usually some major conflict that can't be resolved and uh, i remember sitting downstairs couldn't go to walk upstairs to bed and i was just so discouraged and so flat out just telling god you don't drop the ball but i'm telling you god you sure seem like you dropped the ball and uh and i remember saying out loud i am so wounded i am so hurt i'm hurt by the people who i feel like have turned um, against us. I'm hurt by that. The, the wounds that happened to our family two years earlier than that, I am just hurt. And I remember saying out loud, you know, nobody else awake in the home. God, some wounds don't heal. And this one may be the rest of my life. And there was no answer back. And so I said out loud, figures, you're going to be silent and sat there in silence. And then the Bible that I read in the morning was sitting on the little table next to the couch where I read every morning. I picked it up, opened up the bookmarker where I'd left off that day before and turned to Hosea 6 chapter 1. And I'll probably quote quote it badly, but here's what I remember. Return to me, says the Lord, return to me, for I am the one who has wounded you and I am the one who will bind you up. I am the one who will heal you in two days, perhaps three, I will raise you up. And it, the tears flowed, some laughter flowed. I remember laughing and saying, Lord, just like you, I can't pin you down to a timetable. You say two, perhaps three days. <laughs> but I've been saying it's these people. It's this perpetrator and it's these individuals who've caused the wound. They're just the scalpel. You're the hand, you're the physician's hand behind it. And I don't know why you would use evil. It doesn't make you authoring the evil, but it just makes you good enough to use evil for a better purpose. So whatever you want to cut out of me, cut it out of me. And it really was, I can say in hindsight, it was an identity transformation. I learned to actually believe that Jesus is good and Jesus is strong. And if he's in charge of my life, he's going to do good things that I don't have to perform to be good enough. He's just made me
1: good. So if you could give one message, can't give two, you just have give, give one, you give one message to the listeners today, what would that message be?
0: Jesus is enough. He is really enough to sustain us in the loss of the grief that we're walking through. He's really enough to remake us and make a whole new person. Um, He's just enough to come through.
1: Mark, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Come back next time when Mark will finish his story and tell us what God has taught him about forgiveness, fear, and grief. Hey, if you are listening today and you have experienced some tough circumstances, maybe life has given you a season of darkness that you just can't seem to shake. Maybe you feel there is no hope. There is always hope in Jesus Christ. And as Mark shared, He is enough. He is enough to fill every hole in your heart and He can give you peace in the midst of the storm. All you have to do is surrender your struggles to Him and He can calm the raging sea. He can change your life However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.